Unpopular opinion, but unpopular opinion. Unpopular opinion. Unpopular opinion. Unpopular opinion. You're listening to Unpopular Opinion, a podcast for professionals from all walks of life who want to hear success stories from innovators who've won by taking the path less traveled. In each episode, recovering journalist and content marketer Ashley Amber Saba interviews individuals who have prospered thanks to their genuinely unpopular opinions, despite warnings from naysayers, threats to their careers, and colossal obstacles. All rebels are welcome. Welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host, Ashley Amber Sava, and this episode is brought to you by my friends at Audience Ops. Audience Ops is a content marketing agency, and they produce every episode of my show. If you're looking to launch a podcast for your brand or for your business, please connect. Today, I am joined by Lex Winship, head of brand and content at Loxo. Lex, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. I am excited to have you, Um, and I can't wait to get into your unpopular opinion today, as it is that D2C has ruined our perception of the word brand, and it is not as, as you quote, simple as be more like them, and it never was. You believe B2B should not emulate D2C as a goalpost, and I would just like to chat with you about why that is and how this belief has shaped your approach to branding. Totally. Yeah, man, I feel like there has been so much conversation in the B2B space, you know, since I joined the space um, about how B2B marketing is boring. And Mm. often the second piece of that conversation is we should be more like D2C. Um, And I think that in so many ways, that is an oversimplification. And it's a very reductive way of looking at the issue of B2B marketing being broken. Um, I think that, yeah, there are so many distinct nuances between B2B and D2C. Um, And I think the biggest thing that I come back to every single time is in D2C, you know, you can get away a little bit more with having a bad product because there are just so many differences in the way that that world works. Um, So if you have excellent marketing and a kind of crappy product, you can still be relatively successful because the trend cycle is so rapid In B2B, that's not the case. And so we miss a very, very, very important piece of the puzzle when we say B2B marketing is boring. Let's be more like D2C because what works in D2C is never, ever, ever going to work in B2B. Um, And I think the biggest thing that I come back to every time is B2B marketing should be product led. If you have a bad product, you cannot have a good brand. It's just impossible. Um, This is one of those things that I don't want to get lost in the conversation that I do agree with and do enjoy around bringing more creativity and more humanity into the B2B world. Um, So yeah, I think that B2B marketing should be product-led and then it should also be very aware of all of the reasons why a prospect would not buy your product rather than thinking of it in that D2C mentality of it's so easy to get someone to buy something. In B2B, we need to be distinctly aware of the fact that it is really hard to get someone to buy something. What do you think their main key differences you see between B2B and D2C branding strategies um, exist that kind of make them incomparable? Yeah. So um, I touched on one of them already, which is that the trend cycle is just so rapid. I could go on a soapbox about that in general with all of the environmental sustainability impacts that have to do with, you know, the ever decreasing trend cycle, but I will save that for another day. Um, But I think that, you know, associated with that, we also then just have this kind of instinctive understanding that quality 
won't be as good in D to C. Um, you know, it's not something that we even expect as consumers anymore, which again is sad, but true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really depressing actually. Um, and it's also one of those things where it's like, okay, if something is in my price range, it's probably not going to be that great of quality. Um, depressing facts of American capitalism, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and do you think the life cycle, just like how long it actually takes to close deals in B2B is just like, completely different. It doesn't even matter what industry you're in. It's just way and, off. Yeah. This, this, um, I did not plan this, but actually this brand Ourobora, fantastic sparkling water. I was sucked in because I love their packaging. It was an impulse buy for me. I knew nothing about them. Saw, you know, their cans in sprouts one day and was like, oh my gosh, these are so cute. It's a dollar 50. Why wouldn't I buy this right now? Um, D to C is so geared towards that impulse buy. They suck you in with nice packaging. And in this case, the product's great. I love it. Um, in many other cases, I've been duped by fantastic packaging um, mm-hmm. and have had a really crappy product that I've come away with. But the risk is so low in D to C that, okay, yeah, I'm annoyed, but it doesn't really put me out that much that I bought this item and didn't like it. Um, I never expected this product to change my life or, you know, revolution <laughs> the way that I work in any way. Um, in B2B, like you said, the, you know, the buying cycle, a, a product or a trend in the D2C space could live and die in the time that one B2B deal closes. So it's just always going to be a very, very different situation. And while like poor quality shouldn't be able to fly in any market, it does in D2C, but it will not in B2B. Um, and so I I think like, that's the first piece. And then also from a D to C perspective, like your buyer is one person, you know, it's me walking through the aisles of sprouts and seeing, you know, what am I going to make for dinner tonight? B2B, you know, yes, you're marketing to a human, but let's not forget that you are marketing to a human who is searching on behalf of a company on behalf of a buying committee that, you know, could be up to 10 people large. Um, and this is a, you know, this is someone who has their job security on the line, you know, they want to find the best possible product if they're going to advocate for it internally. And also one that they feel confident will actually improve their workflow, their efficiency, their results, whatever it may be. Um, And so I think, yeah, again, yes, let's make it more human, but let's not forget the fact that it's not really as human as a D to C purchase is, you know, it's just, it's a totally different environment um, in so many ways. I can't tell you how many times I've been duped by attractive packaging. I am ashamed about that, especially being in Merck. Oh, it's one of those things where I'm such a sucker for it. And like, I don't want my takeaway to be like, oh, creativity is bad. And like a pretty package is bad. And it's always lipstick on a pig. But there's a lot of lipstick on a pig in the supermarket right now in the stores. Like, you know, it's it's all very it looks good online and then you get it, mm-hmm. you know, the whole what I ordered ordered versus what I got type of mentality. Um, yeah, it's sad. <laughs> I've been duped so many times. Well, and speaking of like lipstick cosmetics, like I've like been a big really um, victim of that. Like, Oh, this cosmetic packaging is just amazing. And now I'm going to think that the product is, and then the next day you wake up and you have hives or some kind of, um, ugly rash and you're like, dang it. Again, fallen victim one more time to this. Like I just, I just don't learn. Although I will say I death wish coffee company packaging. I love death wish coffee company. I hate how much I love them. I have not ever been able to put it down now, but I did just walk by it one day in like H-E-B and looked at the packaging and I was like, I will buy this. And it actually has changed my life. 
with the death wish. I haven't tried it yet, but we just bought it. Seth and I were in Whole Foods and we were like, I was like, let's get some coffee beans while we're here, oh. you know, pick something out. And he picked out death wish. And I was like, yeah, cool packaging. Let's go for it. Let's give it a whirl. You will actually love it and be addicted to that. Just I will um, say that in coffee in general, I do find that the better the brand, the better the coffee quality in general. Cause I think coffee roasters are like artisans in general. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where like, they always have great merch. They always have like a great vibe. If I walk into a coffee shop and it doesn't have a good ambiance, I'm like, this coffee is probably going to suck because those two things go hand in hand in coffee. I don't know why. I love that takeaway. I do. Like it really actually does check out, I would say. Well, definitely now that you have the packaging and you're going to have the coffee, follow them on social media. They're funny. Like they're a funny brand. I love it. (laughs) Well, can you kind of catch everybody up on your background now that we're at this close proximity relationship here about the coffee and about the packaging and me and lipstick on a pig, like time for people to know about you. Yeah. There's so much to say. How do I sum it up in, you know, a couple of sentences? Um, I think like one of the biggest things to know about me is just I'm not a marketer by background. Um, It's something that I still consider myself relatively new to. Um, I came here by way of journalism and then into the nonprofit world. Um, I was doing fundraising for the beginning six years of my career. So um, from the grants management and PR side of things to actual like, you know, meeting with people and asking them for large donations. So spent the early years of my career very heavily in that world and only doing marketing on a very small kind of like nitpicky type basis. Like I was always the person that people sent emails to, to be proofread. And, um, you know, it was definitely much more of a me being involved in a tangential way, not something that I was like owning strategy or anything like that. So ending up in marketing happened by accident, which is how I honestly sum up my entire career, everything that has happened has been totally a happy accident and something that I never, ever would have planned for. Um, I changed my major like 12 or 13 times, I think in college officially. I changed my major so many times. I was uh, a nursing major. I was an education major. I was a history major, a psychology major. Um, And I think the biggest thing that led me to finally lock in on uh, journalism was the fact that I could be excited about literally everything. And I wanted to know more about everything. And I think that that makes me a better marketer too. Um, That's something that, you know, helps me in fundraising and like really understanding what, you know, what people really want when they're making a donation, you know, how do we make them feel really fulfilled and really connected to the mission? And then now as a marketer, it's something that, you know, asking questions and never being afraid to be the annoying person who has their hand up um, has definitely served me well. so yeah, that's kind of a little bit about my background, very non-linear, but here I, we are. I've, I know you've mentioned too, that just having that, um, that diverse um, path has made you a much stronger researcher, which I completely can relate to as a journalism major and uh, other <laughs> things. We have a lot in common, we have a lot <laughs> but in common. how has your curiosity and willingness to explore all of these things benefited you in marketing? Yeah, this is going to sound so trite, but I definitely live by the mentality of once you feel like you figured everything out, that's when you start falling behind. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that for me, um, the fact that I still feel new to this and still feel like I have so much to learn, that's something I want, hope that I never lose. Like, I hope I always feel like I'm still kind of new to this, you know, I'm still getting my feet wet um, because it gives me that permission 
internally to always be in question mode. Um, and so I think that, yeah, definitely the, the biggest takeaway that I have from my journalism education is just um, asking the right question can change everything. Um, it can reveal something that you would have never even thought to pursue. And so I think that for me, when it comes to maintaining curiosity, it's not so much about um, finding the right answer, but like finding a new question. And so um, I think, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I just hope that I never, ever lose. And it's been really helpful for me as a marketer to come into teams that are very um, data focused. That's never been something that I consider my strong suit by any means. Um, and to kind of challenge preconceived notions and, you know, be the person who, who is offering objective eyes and saying, okay, like, I totally get that this is the way that you guys do this, but why? And is there room for there to be another way? And so often those conversations, whether we end up going with the traditional way or finding something new, the conversation that happens in that place does inform some step of the way. Um, and so I think that for me, it's given me more of that understanding of, okay, it's sometimes scary or vulnerable to ask questions, but it very rarely leads to something bad. Usually it ends up being beneficial <laughs> for me at the very least, but often for more than myself. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I'm kind of the person who's willing to take that hit, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I'll be the one to ask the question. I don't mind. It's a very good quality to have. Um, can you walk me through like an instance where your unconventional thinking or questioning led to a very outside the box content strategy or just a fun branding campaign, anything like that? Yeah, this is one that I like to soapbox about quite a bit, actually. Um, as a writer by trade, that's what I would consider like one of my core strengths and capabilities. Um, you know, you hear every 30 minutes on LinkedIn, someone posts something about how being concise is the gold standard for copywriting. And, you know, like if you're not concise, you're going to lose people within the first millisecond, whatever it may be. Um, you know, I've read all of these pieces and for a long time, it made me feel really insecure because um, they made me feel like there was only one way to win. And um, for a long time, I've kind of challenged that perception with myself, with my clients, um, when, especially when I was working in the agency world, kind of pushing back against that and saying, okay, what if there's a way that we can tell this story that may not be totally concise, but that is compelling. And I never really had a ton of data to back it up uh, officially, but since joining the LOXO team, Diego, uh, my counterpart on the demand side, has been running a ton of analyses on all of LOXO's ads um, over the course of the entire time that he and I have been working with them. Uh, so for probably about a year and a half at this point. And in every single case, the creative ads that had the most words on them were the highest performers. Oh, I'd love to hear that. It, it, it was amazing. <laughs> I was like a dancing around my office. Like this was the best news I could have ever heard. Um, I was dancing to Mama Mia. Like it was just the best thing ever. And I think what I had to keep in check for myself was, okay, this doesn't mean that being long-winded is good. It doesn't mean that more words is always better, but it does mean that rules are not necessarily always as hard and fast as a LinkedIn influencer would like you to believe that they are. And I think that it's caused me to just take everything I read with a grain of salt. Uh, and again, that's, I'm a skeptic by nature. I'm curious by nature. So it's my tendency to kind of want to push up against the, you know, the bounds of the box that I'm in. But I think that that was a really validating experience and one that, yeah, was proof of the fact for me that, okay, doing things a little bit unconventionally 
can be really powerful. People get sick of seeing the same thing over and over and over again. So there's room to push back against that and try something totally different. That's kind of like, like for me, Oatly comes to mind. Yeah. Um, I love them. I, I honestly, like I look at every piece of copy that they do on anything. The milk curtain itself is funny. Every, every little uh, copy piece of copy on there, I have got through all of it. It makes me smile. It's not boring at all. Um, but I think the thing that I like that they did, um, the most that I heard about was that they had that campaign that had come out. Um, and the campaign was basically, and they made a web page, and it was just full of like their haters and yes. They own the domain to this hateful, hateful feedback on Oatly. And I cannot get over how much I love that. <laughs> it really is. Like they're such a good example of there's a time and a place for long form copy. And I think that, yeah, like they kill it in that regard. And that is something that, you know, one thing I do admire about D2C and something that maybe they, you know, have permission to slash it's a little bit easier for them to get away with is just taking risks. Um, and being able to experiment a little bit and see if these things pay off. I totally get why we don't do that as much in B2B because it just does feel so much more risky. Um, but I think that that is something that we should aspire to is, okay, if we're ever going to move away from this, you know, super boring, super dry B2B marketing thing that I think we're already kind of moving away from, uh, we have to take risks. Like that has to happen. And D2C does do that really well because they can. <laughs> Well, and speaking of them, D2C, back to that again now, what do you think um, have been the most negative examples of impact that they've had in B2B branding now? Like things that we've maybe tried to take on that just haven't panned out the way that they should. Yeah. I think one of the bigger like implications of, you know, yeah, I bought a product. It wasn't good. I got sucked in. I got kind of duped and kind of, you know, feel disappointed by that. We now have this school of people who are very skeptical of brand in general. They think of it as just pure fluff. They think of it as something that um, is unnecessary. And so I think that there's a lot of damage that really honestly comes down to just like the reputation of the word brand itself. And so I think that, you know, my solution to that would be to say, brand is not the thing that you use to cover up a bad product. Uh, it never should have been that. And it like, in B2B especially, like that just can't work, but rather it is the thing that you use to uh, tell the story of your product and really let your product shine. And it's the thing that you use to build trust with your audience. So I think for me, the takeaway isn't, okay, brand is bad. All of the fun fonts and colorful packaging and design and all of these elements are bad. No, they're so good. I nerd out over those, those things like crazy. And I love seeing that in B2B. But that alone will not solve our problems. We need to have one, a, a very focused strategy around this. Why are we doing these things? And two, we need to have an understanding that these are all components of the larger story, which is building trust and building relationships. So if you're using brand as a vessel to do those two things, then great, you're doing brand well. If you're using it as a way, as an easy win or a way to get people in the door, but really you don't have anything to back it up. Okay, sure. Maybe you booked a phone call. Maybe you, I don't even know what, but you're not going to win in the long run because product is everything. Uh, trust is everything. So that's why social proof obviously is such a huge, huge thing. Um, in the D2C world, uh, you know, you've got micro influencers who are super, super powerful and have a major impact on sales in that world. But then 
social proof in, you know, use cases and case studies in the B2B world, I think is something that we have done a good job of realizing that that type of like human centric storytelling works really well and applying it in a new way for B2B. So I think if we can find more ways to creatively do that, like take what works in one world and not just copy paste, but rather like iterate on it and make it make sense in this space, like that's how we'll win. I know like you, um, we're not naturally data inclined. So it probably is a little bit more uh, difficult, like for me and it, um, to kind of balance that data with the decisions you're making in marketing with creative. So balancing that creative and the critical thinking. Um, can you share a scenario where these two aspects have clashed or complemented each other in your um, career? Yeah, I think, as you said, you know, coming from a background in which data was not my strong point, like analysis, definitely, but data itself and like really understanding it at face value, never something that I, you know, would say that I'm amazing at. So when I first became a marketer, I felt so insecure about that, that I just became data obsessed. I was like, it has to be data backed. It has to be data, this data, that data, the other thing, like I lived and breathed data and I was not a good marketer. <laughs> I was addicted <laughs> to the data and it was not working because I was stifling like all of the things that I'm actually good at um, and just sacrificing that for data's sake. Uh, so I think that that slowly, honestly, just through burnout broke in me. I dreaded Monday mornings. I worked, you know, until 1 a.m. every night, you know, because I never felt like I was good enough. And I just got sick of that. And I realized like, okay, this is not really going to be the way that I win personally. Um, and therefore I'm not going to be marketing as effectively as I could for, you know, the company that I was at at the time. And so what I started really doing was just leveraging the strengths of those around me. I was, you know, managing a small team, mostly a lot of outsourced partners. And I was like, okay, this is not my strength. My strength is my creativity, my objectivity, um, my willingness to ask questions and push things. So how can I use the skills of those around me to really make sure that I'm doing that in a contained way that makes sense and feels strategic and has, you know, ties to big picture goals. And so I think that now I'm just very aware of who am I in the room with and what are my strengths, what are my strengths, what are theirs, and how can we kind of collaborate to create the best possible result? So I have an open relationship with data now. It is definitely something that I still, I still love it. I still think it's very powerful. I'm definitely not within the school of thought of like, you know, creativity trumps data. I think that both, you know, their partners, they need to hold hands and having a really, really good relationship with data scientist minded people has been the most transformative thing um, in my entire career. You know, that has been the biggest game changer for me because it's given me the ability to really understand and interpret the data in a way that makes sense for me and that I can actually apply to my work without having to be the data expert myself. So it's definitely valuable to have those in-house data people that you can actually have access to. It's a game changer. And that's why for me, building relationships across departments, you know, if I was giving any young person, someone who's green and new to their career advice, like that would be the number one thing I would say is if you can build relationships across departments and really, really start to understand the nuances of anyone else's job within the company and just build a friendship with them, you will be so much more effective at your job because you'll know so much more than anyone else because, you know, those relationships, they really, really, really do pay off. 
I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank the audience ops team for producing the podcast. They make it easy to just focus on talking to fantastic people like Lex, and I would not have this show without them. If you're looking to produce a podcast for your brand or business, I definitely recommend that you check them out and let them handle the publication and creation of all of your assets. I am happy to make the intro. Okay, back to you, Lex. I would love to hear any advice that you have for marketers who are just looking to kind of break away from the conventional wisdom and develop their own unique strategies. Yeah, I think my advice to a marketer who's trying to be a little bit more creative or more unconventional in their approach would be the same that I would give to a company or a brand that was in that position. And it would be that they need to cultivate their own POV on something on, you know, whatever it may be. Um, a unique POV is great, but an ownable POV is better. Something that you really feel like you can live into and that you can become an expert on. I think the way to be a better marketer is really very closely tied to being a better human in general, you know, like being interested in things happening outside of you is just such a strength as a human and 100% as a marketer. I think back to in middle school, there was only one way to be cool. Like you had to wear, you had to wear Abercrombie. You had to not have hairy arms, which unfortunately I did. You had to have perfectly straight hair. (laughs) You had to fit into a box of what cool is. And as an adult, you start to realize, okay, there's so many ways to be cool. And so many people around me who are so cool, but are so different from each other. And so I think that as a marketer, it's really, really, really important to not lose sight of that fact. Like you can't have that middle school mentality. Um, so you got to find your way. It might not be someone else's way and might look very different. Um, but I think that the biggest key is analyzing all of the ways that you specifically have won in the past, maybe not necessarily as a marketer, um, but personally within your career, whatever it may be, like, what are your mountaintop moments and what's the common thread between those? Because that that's your strength. That's your ownable strength and your, you know, you can turn that into your distinct POV. And so I think that, um, yeah, for companies, that would be my advice. And for individuals, that would be my advice. You know, if you can do that, then you can position yourself really strongly within even a competitive market. So how, what role do you think authenticity plays in branding then? Uh, in B2B, I think authenticity is huge, especially because as much as we would like to believe that we are cultivating and creating a brand, like there's no such thing as controlling the narrative in B2B. Um, It is so much less about your brand than it is about what people say about your brand or um, the experience that you provide to people who interact with it. So um, the people that you hire, the people that sell your product, the people who buy it, the people who decide not to buy it for whatever reason, Um, the people who leave a review, like these people are controlling your narrative. So if you can give them a good experience, if you can provide that consistently, then um, that will be your saving grace. But yeah, authenticity matters. And it's not necessarily something that you can create or again, yeah, like cultivate on your own. It's something that you bring into existence by having a good product and providing a good experience. It's, you know, having good people working for your company and um, building trust. So I think it's huge, but I think it's something that is only comes from doing things the right way. And there's no shortcut to that. 
Could you share challenges that you faced in advocating for any of your unique uh, opinions or unconventional ideas in corporate and what you did to overcome them? Yeah, not, not to be um, that girl, but I do feel like, you know, being a woman, uh, especially, you know, a young woman and a young woman who looks even younger than she is, there's always that challenge of, you know, am I going to be taken seriously? Am I going to be seen as too green? Am I going to be, you know, seen as just kind of this weak link? Um, and you're always kind of battling that and, you know, trying to walk that line. And especially me as someone who loves asking questions and loves pushing things a bit, you're kind of constantly battling that imposter syndrome and trying to make sure that you are taken seriously. So it's keeping that in check. Um, but I think that the biggest thing that I have to remind myself again is, okay, even if I'm not taken seriously, when I ask this question, like I will be able to be a more serious person on the other side of having this answer. So I have to just feel confident in that and really just own it and say, all right, um, I can't control what other people think about me or how they perceive me, but I can control my outputs. And I know that I will have better outputs if I'm willing to put myself out there and ask questions and be seen um, as the type of person who does that. So I think the biggest thing for me is just battling the natural insecurity and imposter syndrome and all of that, you know, um, and just pushing back against it and saying, all right, yeah, that stuff is real, but I'm not going to let it win. And I'm not going to let it really change the way that I interact with those around me or with the work that I'm doing. But it definitely makes you feel a little bit more scared to push the boundaries. You know, sometimes I feel like a little kid who is just talking back to their parent or something like, no, I want to do it this way. Or like, why, why, why do we have to do it this way? And so I have to remember that, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a little kid and this isn't my parent. This is, you know, this is a, this is a peer to peer conversation and we're trying to find the best possible answer and going along with things just to be seen as, you know, um, on the same page as someone is not necessarily always the right way to get to the best possible conclusion. When you think about the tools that you've had that have helped you establish your critical thinking or creative skills over the time, um, what kind of books or mentors or experiences or anything like that could you share? I've had great mentors. I've had great um, professional relationships and just friends who uh, I can talk to about, you know, interesting trends, just, you know, be curious with both in the creative space and then, you know, in the performance marketing world, data scientists all that jazz. Love that. That's the best. Again, number one thing I would recommend. Number two thing I would recommend and thing that I think has really served me well and is something that I just don't think enough marketers do is just reading a crap ton of fiction. Fiction is so underrated in the marketing world. And, you know, I read a post every three days about, you know, the list of top 10 books I read this year that changed me and fundamentally made me a better marketer. And those are all great. I've read a lot of those books and I like them, but reading Donald Miller's story brand for the 400th time, I don't <laughs> think it's going to make uh, marketing, B2B marketing less boring. Like I think that we've all read it. It's great, but nothing's really changed, you know, or, you know, at this point it's changing. But I think that if more marketers spent more time reading fiction and letting their imaginations run wild, which is something that we don't generally indulge in in our nine to five. So taking the time outside of it to really invest in your imagination and in your creativity 
will pay dividends. Like I really genuinely believe that. And I wish more people had that mentality. And I wish it was seen just as highly and just as seriously to spend your time reading fiction as it is to spend your time reading a nonfiction book. Um, so that's one of my personal soapboxes and something that I feel like I'm personally a huge advocate for is just read more fiction. It will make you a better person and it will make you a better marketer. Remember being on a job interview a few years ago and they were asking me like what was on my bookshelf or the actual question was what was the last book that you're either currently reading or what was it? And I remember it was The Haunting of Hill House. And as mm-hmm. I started talking about it, you could just tell the interviewers like just lost yes. complete interest in me at that point because it wasn't one of those nonfiction content marketing books Comic that, habits. Yeah. that they were expecting. But I love that advice. And it is one of my favorite pieces of advice to give other people too is keep on reading fiction for fun. Don't lose that in you. No. And yeah, for fun. And also just like we, again, in our nine to fives, we are spending so much, you know, living and breathing the things that we're then reading about, you know, when we read these nonfiction books and it's like, yes, there's a time and a place for that, but we need more diversity in our experiences and in our education as adults. And so I think that for me, knowing that at the end of a day of work, I'm going to read a story that transports me somewhere else and that challenges my perception and pushes back against some of the preconceived notions that I might have about a type of person or a concept or whatever it may be like that excites me and we need more things that make us excited because that makes us just better in general what do you think is next for b2b marketing what do you think the future is (laughs) man I could see it going in so many different directions and I am as someone who again asks a lot of questions I have more questions than I have answers on this. Um, I think though, this conversation around B2B marketing, you know, being boring versus, you know, there's kind of this whole circular argument about then some people are like, well, it's really not, you know, I think that if we take that to the next natural place, like this could be really, really powerful. But I think a big thing that needs to be understood is that the status quo is a status quo for a reason. And until we really acknowledge that and stop kind of having this circular debate, I don't think much will change. I think we have a lot of B2B marketers talking to other B2B marketers, and it's kind of become this echo chamber. Uh, And it's all good ideas, but I don't know if it's necessarily really breaking through into the larger market as a whole, because we're all just talking to each other. And for the most part, we kind of agree. So how do we actually make change happen? And I think that the biggest thing that we need to do is move into more of like a diagnosing the actual problem type of stage rather than just kind of sending one-liners back and forth to each other into the void. Um, so I think like- what this is deep what, knowledge. What does it mean for something to be broken? Mm. How do we, you know, how do we change that really? Is it broken or is there just one little piece that's a little bit missing that we need to slide back into place? You know, how do we make this actionable rather than just like think peaceable? Um, I think that's where we struggle because marketers, I think in general, struggle with that. You know, it's it's a lot of thought. It's a lot of ideas being exchanged, but to create um, an actionable plan around that is difficult. And what works for one will not work for all, you know, B2B is a very large, it's a very large space. There's a lot of nuances between individual businesses, between individual, um, you know, 
verticals. It's just, it's not as simple as anyone would have you believe. And so I think for me, the biggest thing is I go back to the same thing that I, I think I started this conversation with, which is just, we need to start asking the right questions rather than um, simply putting out statements and hoping that they change the entire world because that's not going to happen. It's just like, not. and what the, along with, with the echo, it, yeah, well, and along with the echo chamber though, like it's all about like uh, issuing ultimatums and like diagnosing the end of a thing or just absolutes. And it, I find it to be very cumbersome and just ridiculous at the end of it. Like how many times are we going to have to listen to email is dead? Like, email is dead. SEO is dead. This, that, everything's like, dead. Everything's why is dead. everything always and, dead? Oh, wait, SEO's back. Here's why it's back. You know, it's like, okay, at the end of the day, yeah, like I want to get down to what actually, you know, what is the core issue here? Not all of these like weird, random silver bullet type fixes. So that's one thing. But one thing I am curious about in B2B, and this is something that has happened a lot recently, like in the past five years, especially in the D2C world, is just brand collaborations in general. Um, that is something that I'm really interesting interested to see how it translates into the B2B world. If it does, I'm not sure. But I think that that could be a really interesting thing that could work well um, across, you know, we have a lot of integration style marketing, but from a true collaboration, like riding each other's coattails type situation, um, is there space for that? Does it make sense in B2B? How could that look? I'm curious about that. And I'm wondering, you know, is that a conversation that we'll start having more of in the next year or two? Um, so it's one, I guess, speculation I would make and something that I'm kind of following along with, but otherwise everything's changing so rapidly yet also nothing's changing at all. And so I hesitate to make any predictions because who the hell knows? <laughs> like, If anyone claims to know, I'm skeptical. Um, so what kind of advice would you give to professionals who are maybe uh, struggling to find their thing? Younger professionals who have a, like a lot of interests like you did. Yeah. Would you give anything you would tell them? Yeah, I think I'd go back to just find the common thread. Um, there's no one right thing for you to do. My career is a great example of that. I'm so happy with where I'm at right now. I've been happy at every step, to be honest. Um, and at every step, I have not been able to predict what the next step would be. And it's always been a little bit of a curveball. So I think if you're in a place that you're not really sure is, you know, your thing, if you haven't had that like aha moment, I've never had it. And I don't think I ever will. And I think pursuing that, you know, can really give this false idea of what your career should look like. Um, I know I definitely had this idea that, I would be on a very linear path and that I would always know what my next step was and what my five next steps would be. So I think for me, it's find the common thread in what you love doing and really, really become a master at applying that, whatever that skill is, whatever that unique ownable POV is, like become a master at applying it wherever you are and in whatever you do. And your next best step will become apparent. Um, it might not always be expected and it might not be something that you necessarily could have planned for, but it will become apparent, um, when it arises. So if you can cultivate that within yourself and can really lean into it, don't worry about the rest. <laughs> I ask everybody who comes on my show at the end to debunk 
an unpopular opinion and I can't wait for yours. This one's kind of dumb, but one that I really believe in very strongly, which is that the Oxford comma is not a personality trait, even though many people have tried to make it into one. You know, you see on dating sites, like descriptions, it's like, I love the Oxford comma. And people try to make that like sum up their entire existence. I'm over it. I like the Oxford comma, but it's not a personality trait. However, the M dash and loving the M dash is a personality trait. I love the M dash. The M dash is, I I love the M dash. I use it more than I should, but oh. I can't get enough of it. Me too. It's like every sentence has at least three. And then I'm like, okay, let's comb through. And it's just beautiful. It really is. It's so all purpose, but it's, it's just, it's punchy. It, the M dash is amazing. And I identify with it very strongly. Um, so I think that we need to, we need more M dash discourse. We need less Oxford comma discourse. It's played out. I am down for that. Like this may be one of my favorite takes yet. <laughs> it's definitely a journalism take. I would say like anyone, you're a writer. If you have strong feelings about the M dash. I, I love this. I need a, I need a cup with the M dash. That's what I need. I don't have a coffee mug with the M dash, but I do have one that's all about punctuation that it, all of my punctuation coffee mugs have been gifted to me nobody has gifted me an m dash one but i think i'm gonna go out and buy one now like it's on etsy line it's just a line line that's all it needs to be it's drawing a white mug with a permanent marker and you're good (laughs) i just need a blank cup and that'll be good to go (laughs) where where can people go if they want to get more lux yeah follow me on linkedin uh i also have a website lexywins.com um I don't know why, but my last name is Winship, uh, my married last name. And I love shortening it to wins. I'm like, this is just like, it's so punchy. It's so great. I love that. So I'm pretty much Lexi wins, L-E-X-C wins on like all platforms everywhere. Um, so if you, for some reason, want more Lex, you can always find me at Lexi wins. It was absolutely a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you again for your time. Thank you for having me. And thanks, audience ops. I'll put the plug out there too. (laughs) Yeah, we're just plugging them away. Okay, well, thank you again. And thank you, audience ops. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for listening to Unpopular Opinion. This episode was produced by Audience Ops. If you're looking for help launching a podcast, Audience Ops handles all the legwork so you can focus on providing the subject matter expertise. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow Ashley's show on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube.